welcome to episode 14 of the Camera Shack podcast, the podcast where we talk about anything and everything to do with photography and videography. Uh, we'll discuss new gear, uh, new photography stories, and everything that comes to mind and has got anything to do with holding up a camera. So uh, obviously we're not in lockdown anymore. Clearly we've been in our new set um, for a few weeks now, but today we have changed a couple of things, haven't we? We have, we have. Um, first thing we've actually changed is right above us. The and light. that is the new new light that we're using. It works actually your light, isn't it, this one? So, yeah, so the light, the, yeah, the, uh, um, well, the modifier on it. Sorry. The modifier, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we've been we've been playing around with with the softbox before. We had the uh, the aperture light dome yep. that we've been using, and it's it's the large light. I can't remember what was the diameter. The diameter it, of it. Massive. That's the it's diameter. The of massive it. one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, the, the thing about the light dome is it, it gives you like a really nice diffused yeah. light, and really what does it is the kind of depth of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a double diffusion in it, and it's um, it's a really it's a beautiful, beautiful diffuser essentially. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of depth to it, and we we have to get the light under the ceiling, and so we've never really been able to get the light right on top of us, or right above us. Yeah. Um, so it's always we had to kind of put the light in at an angle almost. So I think from the start we wanted to have it. At almost ninety degrees mm. to us, right? But yeah, not, maybe not quite, but there or thereabouts. Yeah. And with that, we've never never been able to do it. If we did that, the light dome would probably finish. Somewhere <laughs> yeah, exactly here, right. right? So we'd be able to light this part of the. Part <laughs> so of the it's home. kind of been at more of a, a forty five degree angle, yeah. and slightly off to the side yeah. too, which has worked fine. Yeah. Has it been ideal? No. Is it being getting get us the results we were quite looking for? Not quite. Yeah. And this is just in the pursuit of, you know, making things as Perfection. perfect as we want. That's right? it. Um, so we could have left it as it was. No worries. But yeah. we figured we'd, uh, you got the, a nice new toy. So <laughs> yes, I, yeah, so I bought a beauty dish, um, mainly for, you know, my headshot photography and um, portrait stuff that I do. Because, um, you know, occasionally you need a new toy. That's just how things go. And... Uh, and so as I was testing this out um, at home, I kind of thought, you know what, actually, I wonder how that would work as a key light mm. um, for for the podcast. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, what makes it so beautiful in a way, and I don't know whether it's actually really going to be beautiful because once we've, you know, we really only see that in editing, but so far, just sitting here, it looks great. Quite pleased. Yeah, exactly. quite pleased. But the, the thing about it is that it's considerably shallower than the light on. Yeah. And so, you know, with a, um, like with a T-bar sort of thing, you know, we'll get that, not T-bar, what's it called? Uh, thingy bar thing. I'm not sure where you're going with that. <laughs> <laughs> what's that stand called? Oh, s- what's it called? Oh, the boom. The boom. <laughs> I don't remember the name of it, but I used to. Yeah, I'm leaving that in. <laughs> <laughs> right. The boom, not T-bar. The, the uh, yeah, with... With the boom stand, we're actually able to get this light pretty much right on top of us, which yeah. is uh, which is pretty cool. Um, and so I was I was trying this out um, yesterday, and so I've had it for a few days, mm-hmm. um, and, and I've really, with the new puppy and everything, I didn't really get much of an opportunity to try it. Um, that took what two minutes? Yeah, two minutes. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, so I was trying this out, um, and and I realized that the, the light that I was getting from it was actually 
awesome. Mm. It's this thing. When the thing about a beauty dish is, uh, first of all, it's indirect light. Because what happens is uh, the, the beauty dish, just you know, as, as an explanation for those of you who don't know, a beauty, a beauty dish is essentially like a bowl that is reflective inside. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also has another little reflector shield uh, built inside of it. And so what happens is as the light shoots into the, uh, into the beauty dish, it actually doesn't pass through. It hits the reflector inside a little shield. It gets reflected back into the pan. And that's the light that gets reflected back onto the subject. So really what you're getting is indirect light. Yeah. Right. And um, from a portrait perspective, it gives you really nice highlights um, in the eyes because it's got these round highlights. And because of that little shield in the middle, it gives you that the slightly darker spot, which looks very kind of natural, almost like a pupil. Mm, mm, Um, mm. But also the light itself, especially on the face, is a little bit different than um than than a standard um you know softbox or an octobox or something like that um because the, the thing about um a softbox is that you get like really nice soft shadows you know um and you get this really nice soft light um a beauty dish has a little bit more contrast a little bit more contrasty and so what it does is it it kind of carves out your facial features a little bit more. It's mm. so like cheekbones, and you get a nicer kind of shadow around the, around the uh, cheekbones, stuff like that, especially with people who actually have cheekbones. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's called a beauty dish because it really, um, it makes, it has a really positive effect on skin tone. So it, it almost like, um, it almost like burns out all the, well, not burn out, but it kind of blasts away a lot of the kind of blemishes and imperfections in the skin. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's used in fashion photography a lot, um, and so you know, I kind of thought I, w- I wanted I want to use a beauty dish for for my headshot photography, just to try it out really, and give it that slight slightly different yeah. look. Uh, and so, and as I was testing it out yesterday, like I said, you know, I kind of thought I wonder what that would be like as a video, like as a video light, you yeah. know, for the podcast. Yeah. So that's what we're trying out today. The other thing I found, right? So I put the it comes with a grid. <laughs> And of course, what the, what the grid does is it sort of channels the light, focuses the light. So rather than uh, spilling a lot of light onto the background, for example, it really focuses the light um, onto the subject. And the advantage with that is, is that um, it allows you to obviously not get any light onto the background. And so therefore, the background appears dark and then you can light the background separately or not. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of. mm-hmm. um, and the grid that this particular beauty dish comes, for, uh, comes with, it really allows you to really create this razor thin layer of light that it really just kind of carves out the face. Beautiful. Love it. The only problem is, of course, as soon as you put something in front of the, the actual uh, modifier, it will take away some light. I mean, it's the same thing when you add diffusion to a softbox. You mm-hmm. know, it'll, it'll drop um, the, the power by, I don't know, half a stop, maybe something yeah. like that. Okay, with this particular um, grid, guess how many stops of light that uh, that drops down? Well, I'm guessing it's more than half then. Um, I mean, yeah, most of the diffusion I use is, is half a stop. I've got some that will drop it by a stop. Mm. Um, if I was guessing that, stop and a half? Two maybe at most? Four and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Man, craziness. Oh, <laughs> Total craziness. Um, so, yeah, you, uh, you know... 
It looks That's beautiful. That's why we didn't try it earlier. <laughs> That's right. We'll be sitting in total darkness. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it does really, really uh, take the power out of the light for sure. The results you get, I mean, you need, you know, so it's, this isn't really going to work with a speed light. No. Um, you know, you'll have to, you have to, you know, wheel out the big guns for that one. So, you know, you need decent, um, decently powered studio light for that. But the results that you're getting with that, I was very, very impressed with that. I actually love it. <laughs> so um, you'll be seeing more of that in the near future. Love it. Yeah. Absolutely love it. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And so for those of you who don't know what the light dome is, it's, um, how wide is that? How deep is it? It's probably four foot, five foot wide and oh, yeah. four foot deep, maybe. So well, that's least, significant, yeah. right? Yeah. And this is maybe, what, two foot in diameter? Um, oh, possibly not, not a, a foot deep, maybe yeah. at most. Yeah. Absolutely at most. Yeah. And yet we're getting, sim- well, it's diff- very different light actually, but yeah. um, we're getting a similar kind of coverage from it without any it, issue. It also has a sort of a diffusion sock kind of a thing, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, um, over it, so it, it does soften the light a little bit, but um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a completely different light source. Mm. This one, so or not light source, but you know, modifier. Um, so we, we will see in the edit as to whether it has actually improved the look or not. So we should, in theory, get slightly. We should still get soft shadows, but they should just be a little bit more defined than they would have been with the light on. But we we'll can you know, we can check that, and hopefully, given that it is narrower. The light isn't spreading quite as far behind us. Yeah, where we're sat right now. Exactly, it should be more of a drop off. So we'll we'll see how that goes. So yeah, anyway, I'm excited. Totally, love trying out new things. Yeah, me too. So you know, <laughs> that's why I always buy gear. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's it. Well, we're, I mean, we were we were talking at one point. We were talking about using a different softbox. Yeah. Um, that's that's not quite as deep as the as the light dome, but uh, but this one could quite work. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, yeah. good purchase, man, and uh, you know, fingers crossed it comes out well. But yeah, we'll I'm see. Very, very hopeful, right? Now. <laughs> it may be horrible when we edit it. Yep. In which case, <laughs> we will re-record this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with different yeah. Um Yeah. So that was uh, that was one of the you know purchases this week. Um, what else happened? Cool uh, we did a we did a photo shoot. Yes. Yeah, we did. That was good fun. Yeah, that was hilarious. Yeah, a lot um, of driving down potholes and whatnot, but other than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, we photographed a car. Um, and uh, I don't know if you, do you remember, I think some time ago we talked about um, the this test shoot that we did with my with my Toyota. Yeah. And so the idea there was that we would test a particular technique um, because we wanted to photograph a Ferrari. That was a plan, which is what we did this week mm-hmm. and we used set technique um, lighting technique to photograph this car so in a nutshell um, what it is is essentially um, you take a series of images whereby you individually light different components or different parts of the car and then in post you put the whole thing together so that you essentially choose the best photos for each part, let's say the door, for example, or the side of the car, the front of the car, the grill or the hood or the interior or whatever. And you you pick the best shot um, and then you put the whole image together mm-hmm. based on all these different parts that you 
you know, masked in and uh, composited in from from uh, from different shots. And the end result should give you a car that's almost like perfectly lit, um, and that's somewhat somewhat sort of hyper real, I would say. So it's just a really cool car shot. Um, in fact, you see a lot of these kind of images in car catalogs, for yeah, example. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's just a fun. It's a fun technique to use. Um, it's actually quite fun to edit that in post as well. Yeah. And um, and the results are kind of cool. Um, and the idea was to combine that with a driver portrait at the same time. So we do the car, then we do the car owner mm -hmm. driver stroke. Um, and the idea was really to combine the whole thing and turn it into one photograph. And as much as making the photo was a bit of a learning curve still, and we're still refining the process a little bit. Um, the actual making of the photo was a lot of fun. It was. You know, so, because I think, I mean, you know, finding the right location was, that was... Uh, that well, was that probably took most of the time. It did, didn't it? it really, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, we went up, met up in the morning and um, we, we just, you know, scouted out a couple of places where we were parked mm -hmm. and um, found a couple that might work. But then we took a drive, didn't we? And, you know, we drove, probably took about an hour, you know, driving mm -hmm. around the, the area, trying to look out spots. Thankfully, um, the owner of the Ferrari knows the area quite well. So kind of guided us where down possible routes that might have somewhere yeah. that would work. You know, we'd have a look, and we, you know, we ultimately settled on the spot, didn't we? And uh, took a took a shoot. Uh, well, should we have been there or not? I don't know. Well, <laughs> that's a whole different story. Um, luckily, that worked out for us. Luckily, it did work yeah. out fine. Um, but but first of all, I mean, the, the thing is, with cars like, you know, low lying sports cars like mm. Ferraris and stuff, because, you know, ground clearance is a major issue. So the minute you think like, okay, well, we're going to take a, you know, we're going to photograph this car in the forest. You think, uh, okay, we're going to have to get the car in there, first of all. So therefore, you know, potholes are a no-no. Um, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's remarkable how suitable the ground has to be to even get the car in there. Absolutely. You know, the so and we were driving around in my estate car for while we were scouting out and I didn't even want to go over half of those. No, oh, I know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that happened was that we got busted. We did. Busted in the sense that we weren't really doing anything. We weren't doing anything illegal, I think. No. Um it's just that when you have I think anybody who who uh, finds you know a, a glaringly red Ferrari in the middle of a forest and sees lots of flashes going off will kind of pay attention to it yeah they will <laughs> and i i i think we actually thought we were just out of um we're kind of into the kind of public area of the forest and mm. not but unfortunately we were just still five probably inches mm. just inside still the kind of i don't know what the, the national trust kind of park bit of it you know just yeah. just by that border and yeah, I guess by rights, you know, he could have popped over and said, "Sorry, lads, you're still in our our area. You're gonna have to move it on." But that's not what happened at all. Not at all. No. In actual fact, we had a, a really uh, uh, a really positive exchange yeah. um, w with our forest ranger, and and uh, you know, I didn't know that. I actually really didn't know that there's a lot of filming 
uh, going on in that area yeah. in the first yeah. place. So, um, so I think you know we made a really, a really good contact there. And uh, you know, for, for future reference, it's always a good idea to get in touch with with Forestry England. Is it England Forestry? I, I think it was the Forestry Commission or something. What is it called? I don't the, know. If it's incorrect, we'll add it in the description. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I think it's Forestry England. So it's it's uh, it's a good idea just to get in touch, just to drop them an email, and just to say, you know, look, we're planning on doing this, just because you know somebody might come along and might think like, what is going on yeah. with all the flashing in there? Um, so. But um, but yeah, I, mean, I have to say it was, a, it was a really positive exchange, and the photos came out all right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. And um, yeah, I, I think we sent a copy uh, across to him as well to say, hey, thought you might want to check out the final result. Yeah, because I mean, what was uh, <laughs> what was funny was that he was very much interested in the car. He was, and, and <laughs> I think what helped as well is that he um, was at least a hobbyist um, photographer. Well, as it happened, he was actually the person was like you know responsible for all the photography and filming in in the uh, his region in his region. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so he obviously has some kind of has some kind of interest in it. But yeah, totally, you know, um, it just goes to show. I mean, it's one of these things. Um, you know, just for for future reference, um, scouting out locations is tricky at the best of times. I think, you know, generally. You know, you want to find a location generally that's not overrun, you know, by people. Um, in this particular instance, you know, you you get it, you get the car itself to consider because you yeah. got to get the car in safely, and um, you got to be able to to execute the whole shoot without major disruptions and stuff like that. So, so finding a location for this in this area was actually relatively tricky. Mm, it know? was. Um, it was. So yeah, but I'm, I'm stunned that we came across. The place that we did it was quiet there were no people well there were two people um, and i think we had a couple of us walk walk past here and there but that was it they, they were, were going to model for us as well weren't they? We had a couple of people sitting in the car yeah <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> yeah. nice well um yeah but i mean the car itself was a bit of a showstopper anyway so that was you know pretty it's quite a nice car yeah. I, I can tell you it's a, a red ferrari <laughs> There's some numbers after it. Uh, I don't know. It's a Ferrari and Rose Red. Mm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. But yeah. So, so sorry, Gary. <laughs> um, so that was a that was quite an eventful day this week. A really good shoot. It was. Yeah, it was. And uh, I say my back was uh, hurting the following day after <laughs> after holding that light. Up for, but you for know, so long. Um. The, the thing that struck me with that was how good it felt to actually work as a team again, yeah. you know, yeah. after yeah. like, I don't know, even how many months of God doing kind of almost like solo little, well, like doing little photo shoots, yeah. you know, these kind of shoots are, are, that's kind of the reason why I love photography so much is because you work with, you know, a team of people on on, on a common goal sort yeah, of thing you know absolutely and that was, a, that was a kind of fun part for me um and you meet people like that yeah park yeah. ranger guy there yeah, yeah, yeah as well you know new contact fantastic yeah. absolutely fantastic no you know i like i like on location shooting and of course you know with coronavirus and the whole rest of it mm. for the last um and lockdown and whatnot you know for the last four months or something really there hasn't been much of that yeah um i mean i you know i did a couple of shoots as you know um there were location shoots but they were basically well it's basically just me in a big building that was it. Yeah. So it wasn't really, you yeah. know, it wasn't 
it wasn't like a, a team or anything like that. It was just like very solitary still. So I kind of felt, I still felt isolated, although I was out of the house, if that makes sense. But that shoot last week was fun. Yeah, so. it really was. I'll tell you what, there was um, one thing, obviously, obviously you edited the, um, the, the final result. What was interesting is that even though we, we've done that exactly that type of shoot before, mm-hmm. uh, before we did the, that Ferrari, this time we came up against an issue that we didn't necessarily notice on the day, and that was reflections. Yeah, you know, and when you're going through the edit, because we're in a forest location, the number of reflections onto that car was just probably almost unbearable. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I think. Every shoot has its own difficulties, mm. I think, you know. Um, with this one, it was because we were in a forest and you had, you know, sunlight coming through the leaves and the trees yeah. and everything. Yeah. Um, so one of the issues we had with, with this particular shoot was, was that as far as the exposure was concerned, um, there was a lot of, actual daylight there was a part of the exposure mm-hmm. so it wasn't like you know like what you would do in a studio very often is where you basically cut out any environmental light completely and then you just artificially light the whole yeah model or whatever um, or product artificially so you you're in total control of how you light something um in this particular instance um that's not quite how we did it so as, a, as an end result what, what happened was we ended up with a lot of re, um, kind of reflections especially on the hood of the car mm. and because the light came through you know leaves and trees and everything else um, there were a lot of like scattered reflections on that and although it's all you can handle all of that in photoshop and all the rest mm-hmm. of it you know um, it's, it's not an insurmountable problem it's just a real pain in the neck yeah I think that's that's probably putting it mildly. But th- this is why, you know, you, you do things multiple times. You know, you just the more you do a particular type of project or shoot, the better you get at it. The more different issues you encounter, yeah. your ability to deal with those issues on the spot is significantly increased. And we know the next time, if we're going to be in that kind of location, mm. we, what do we need? We need a massive... Flat. <laughs> a massive scrim, as I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the, that's the thing. So um, it was, you know, again, it was sort of a learning experience, I think, yeah. um, in this particular scenario. Um, now, I don't know whether we're going to end up, you know, shooting another Ferrari in the forest. Maybe, maybe not. But in any event, you know, we've learned something new in this environment. And I think that's the important part. So after every shoot, you know, you need to kind of look back at what happened and reflect and basically think, you know, okay, this went well, this went well. That's a problem area. So the next time we do a shoot under these circumstances, then, you know, I can come up with, with a solution before it actually becomes a problem. Exactly. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, you know, again, it's everything's a learning experience yeah. always. It's funny and it, funny that uh, in hindsight, it seems so obvious. Always does. You know? <laughs> yeah, always does. You know, that's the thing. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, when, when you look at it, in editing, this is a good example as to where uh, you don't necessarily, especially, I mean, this is for me anyway, you know, it, it's easier for me to see issues when I shoot tethered. Mm-hmm. And so when I 
when I do portrait shoots or, or headshot shoots or whatever else, when, when I when I'm in the studio, um, I pretty much always shoot tethered. It's just because I have you know the image pops up on the screen, I can see things in more detail. Um, it just makes it easier for me, and I like working that way. Yeah. Yeah. On location like that, it's not necessarily always possible to shoot tethers. So in this case, it wasn't possible. And you solely then rely on the little screen on the back of your camera. Um, and as much as you can zoom in and everything else, and you obviously check your images over and over again, it's just easier to miss things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and for instance, as far as the lighting, as far as lighting the car was concerned, we did a lot of alternative shots. Like we did a lot of passes. Yeah. Um, and it's a good thing we did because... You know, one thing I've certainly learned is that every car almost like reacts differently to different modifiers, for yeah. example. Um, so what we found is that the, what worked very well on the RAF didn't quite work in the same way on this particular Ferrari. Uh, and that may be because, you know, it's a different shape, different color, different type of yeah. paint, you know, whatever it is. Who knows? The environment as the well. The environment, yeah, which, exactly. Know? So um, it just didn't work as well as it did on the on the raft, so we had to kind of change tact and use a different modifier to get some light on the car. Um, and it was the final pass uh, that made up pretty much, I think, all the images I chose mm. for the final composite. So it was really that last, you know, last ditch attempt. <laughs> I mean, you know, you could have, you know, we and that, that pass was with the was just with a reflector, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so we tried different things. So we tried soft boxes and a bell bulb and, uh, and and the reflector, and the reflector actually worked the best in the end. Yeah. So, um, so it was cool. And that's, that's basically because of the kind of reflections that you end up getting on the on the car itself. So, um, depending on what modifier or not, um, you use. You get different types of reflections, obviously, yeah. in, it, um, in the paintwork, and um, and it just so happened that when we did the test shoot with the RAF, the softbox, the octobox, worked the best. That just looked the best on the car itself. Um, and then we did some bare bulb, I think, from mm-hmm. the ground and underneath and stuff like that. Um, but in this particular case, in the woods and with this Ferrari, it was really the reflector that really worked yeah. the best all the way yeah. through. So. You know, another thing learned. <laughs> you know. This is it, right? That's what I love doing. <laughs> Every time you learn something new. Yeah, and that's that's also why it took the best part of the day. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it did, didn't it? Yeah, yeah right. it did. But good day, good day. Um, yeah, well, well, yeah, I guess it's probably worth mentioning that obviously when we did originally did the RAV, we also talked about... Um, the light painting that Dave Cox was doing, yeah, in um, California, of the cars. Yes, totally different method. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, um, but uh, we'll ho- hopefully we'll have Dave on the show in uh, well in the coming weeks anyway. Uh, yeah, next few episodes. So, um, obviously, availability between here and yeah. California is a little bit different. So, yeah. uh, so I mean, the, the thing with that uh, with that way of um, lighting a car. Is I find that you know that's that's a really good example where uh, you know you can kind of you can look at generally the topic of photographing a car and you can you can immediately see that there's multiple different um, ways of doing it mm. and um, 
so you can do it like through you know in, in the studio very often cars are photographed through like massive uh, diffusers and very often it's like a top-down kind of you know, lighting technique and all the rest of it um light painting like let's call it the Dave Cox method mm-hmm. for the lack of a better word. So light painting like that is, is a really interesting uh, thing whereby you use a long exposure on your camera and you literally have a um, some kind of light source uh, that you point at the car and you literally walk through the image. And as you move through the image, you end up lighting these components of the car. And again, you do n- numerous passes and then uh, in post, you edit the whole thing together and mm-hmm. you, you use bits mm-hmm. from one pass and bits from another pass and you take a background image and all the rest of it and you put it together and you come up with these really incredible, um, inc- incredibly well-lit photographs in the end. The thing about that method, this is something we will hopefully have an opportunity to, to talk to Dave about in more detail and then knowing us, we're going to have to go and try it out. Well, obviously. Uh, for sure. <laughs> Um, but the difference there is that that works best in a dark environment. So it works mm-hmm. best at night. So with what we were doing, we were literally taking individual pictures where we're literally firing a light at individual bits of the car. That's something that's easy to do during the daytime. And I, I think that's why we sort of decided to use that method yeah. for the kind of, for the test shoot that we did and for this particular shoot. That was because we knew it was going to have to be in, in the daytime. So, um, so that's, uh, it's a different method, so the exposure time is a lot shorter. Um, you basically, yeah, like I said, you just fire a flash um, at a at a part of the car, and then you take that image, you take that little bit that you've lit, and then you composite that in with mm-hmm. other shots, of, like other parts of the car, and you put it all together, and it should, in theory, look good. Um, so yeah, again, it's a different method, but it's worthwhile yeah. experimenting oh, with. Yeah. Um, I think... When I first thought of that, that actually came from a different photo that I made, which was a beer bottle, which I did for Innocent Gun. Mm-hmm. And so in, uh, in in product photography, very often you kind of use that same strategy whereby you, uh, like I say, for instance, when you see, see a beer bottle and it's like beautifully lit and it's got like, you know, highlights running down the side of the the bottle and, it's, you know, the it looks like th- there's light coming through the bottle because you can see some of the beer inside mm-hmm. and, and uh, um, the, the bottle tops lid and and the label is lit very specifically and you've got some nice drop of light around you know you know that's kind of like highly um, stylized yeah. kind of images Absolutely. and really more often than not these are these are composites where you know you light individual parts of the bottle individually like you create these highlights by creating like rim lights and everything else and you know, you shoot one side and shoot the other side and you have, you know, you focus light on the, you light the label separately and um, and the bottle top and everything else. And then you composite the whole thing together. That's really where that, that idea for the car originally came from. Like I was right. doing this shoot, I was shooting this bottle and I kind of thought, well, how cool would it be to do that with a car? And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm the first person to come up with this idea. I'm pretty sure other people are doing this, no doubt. But that's, anyway, that's what gave me the idea in the first place. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, you know, it works on anything really. Yeah. You just need a bigger light for cars. Yeah. That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that was our little, um, adventure this week. I'm, I'm expecting you to bring the beauty dish out with you next time we do the car. Well, 
that's an argument to say that could work. It could work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely could work. We'll see. Um, what else has happened um, that was exciting? Well, did another headshot shoot. Oh, good. How'd that go? Uh, that was good, yeah. It was, it was the first headshot shoot in months. Mm. So, yeah. um, did it take you a little while to just kind of get yourself back into the swing of it? So the thing that I really like about headshots and portraits in general is the interaction that you have with with your subject. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's essentially the, the banter, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, so that's very different from the kind of solitary experience that you have when you're a wildlife photographer and you sit out in a hide, you know, and you wait for a bird to do its thing or for an animal to come along or something. Or even like when you're um, a landscape photographer and maybe you're hiking out to a cool location and, you know, you take your time and wait for the sun and the light to do what you want it to do, blah, blah, blah. Um, All of these activities are very valuable activities when it comes to photography. And I can absolutely see how people love doing these things. Uh, For me personally, I just enjoy that interaction. And um, I found over the years that when it comes, particularly when it comes to headshots, you know, if you take that little bit of extra time and you kind of build that connection with your subject, the end result will be so much better. Yeah. yeah. And so you develop this um, tactic almost, or this ability to kind of, you know, to 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 create that that sort of safe environment. You know, where we we. You, you talk to somebody and you kind of make them feel safe and secure mm-hmm. and relaxed. And that's the, the biggest part of that is, is the whole thing about making your subject feel relaxed. Because it's when they start to relax, that's when you start to get the good, mm-hmm. you know, the good shots. Because um, you got to remember, nobody ever feels super comfortable in front of the camera, unless you're like a professional model or something, you know, or even even with actors, I find that, you know, actors are more used to the camera, but they're still not really that used to to uh, being photographed. It's like different. That. It's different. Like, yeah, it's just different. It's one thing being on, you know, on a on a theater stage or um, or you know a proper you know full on yeah. film set. That yeah. that is one thing, but to have someone you know just a few feet away from you snapping away snapping away snapping away snap. mm. it's a very different feeling i think it is and plus you know you're you're literally just you know in, in the room with one other person yeah normally with a headshot shoot it's yeah. usually just me i mean unless it's a a, a biggest corporate shoot where you know you have an assistant and everything else but but typically with like a typical like small headshot shoot is literally just me and the, and the subject and especially with like corporate headshot shoots um these people are not used to being in front of the camera like that. Mm. And so everybody feels self-conscious and, you know, nervous and all the rest of it. And so it just takes a little time to make somebody feel relaxed. You know? mm. Mm. And and again, so it's that communication bit, that banter bit that, uh, that does that. And it takes a little while or it took me a little while to, to develop that. Um, and it was the kind of the thing that I, I felt like I was getting into it, you know, so halfway through, but it felt like more effort to start with. Mm. So typically, you know, under normal circumstances in the normal world, um, I do these headshot 
uh, type of shoots so regularly that that really is you know you just switch it on and and you get on with it. But uh, after like four months, five months or something like that of uh, of not doing that kind of thing, it just took, took yeah. a little extra to kind of get back into it. Yeah. Um, I'm happy with the results, you know. So technically, there's no issue. They're all cool. Um, but it was just it felt good. It felt good to get back into it and also felt good to actually see my subject kind of relax and yeah. get into it a little bit in the end. Yeah. So that was kind of, that was cool. That's cool. Uh, at least you're getting into, uh, you know, doing something with, you know, people that, you know, new clients, people that you haven't worked with before. And, you know, it's, it's like meeting anybody new. It takes time to build a rapport with them. But mm. when you're, you know, it's, seasoned as you are you know what to say how to talk to people to get them as relaxed with you as quickly as quickly yeah. as possible but you you do lose that touch you oh, get rusty totally right? yeah i mean it's, it's like not playing the guitar for like five months you know that's gonna feel rusty as hell you are, rusty <laughs> yeah so you know that's the thing that's kind of that's exactly how i felt like yeah that's like ugh. um but yeah so i've been enjoying this week actually and in the sense that things are starting to kind of get back into the swing mm, of things yeah. you know um, so that's good although everything else seems to be shutting down again oh, yeah <laughs> so yeah let's see what happens we'll see how that goes mm. um so how was uh how's the week for you um it's been a combination of a couple of different things really one i've been desperately trying to relax as much as i possibly can because after that solid couple of weeks where i was doing like well you don't even want to know how many hours it actually ended up being, but mm. it was, I think, around 160. Yeah, no, <laughs> uh, I needed to, I, was, I didn't want to feel completely burnt out, so I tried to take as many days as I could to, mm. to relax. And that, for me, is as important as, as working, mm. you know, making sure your free time is is, um, is your free time and you are as relaxed as you can. Because it's very easy being self-employed to feel... Um, like bad if you're not working every minute of every day you know or doing something related to your business mm. and that's wrong you shouldn't be that way you need to take mm. the time relax because ultimately all you end up doing is being less effective it's true and i feel this a lot actually at home because i work i work i work from home a lot like i have a little um, an extension in my house that's that's doubles as my home studio and my office area is actually Kind of almost like part of the living room, mm -hmm. if you want to call it that. Yeah. Um, and so even on the days when I'm not doing anything, I'm still in full view of my desk and my chair and my computer and everything else. And I almost, I almost always feel guilty yeah. that I'm not doing anything. Yeah. And so, you know, I, th I thought a number of times I thought like, well, it would be so much better if I had a separate part of the house or a separate room or whatever and I could just shut the door and then I don't have to look at it and I wouldn't feel guilty and I could actually maybe relax better um, but it's just not how it's yeah how it is so um, I've been as you know I've been bullet journaling right for some time now mm -hmm. and what I started doing is I started literally scheduling in not necessarily scheduling but I've I've made certain relaxation activities part of my day so on sunday i just the only thing i had in my journal on sunday was read 
because there were a couple of books that I had wanted to read for a while. And mm-hmm. for one reason or another, there's always been something else that's come up. And so that was always like shoved to the side. And so like this, we talk about Annie Leibovitz, was this, uh, this Annie Leibovitz book that I haven't finished that I really want to finish. Now I'm kind of halfway through or whatever. And I've been wanting to finish that for like, since the beginning of lockdown. Yeah. You know, and I just haven't been able to do it. And so I've decided to actually schedule these things. And there's a movie I wanted to watch yesterday. Uh, and I got halfway through it, which is cool. Have you seen The Departed? Yeah. Yeah, it's a long movie. It so is a long movie. I made it yeah. through, so you know, fair enough. But it's, it's one of my favorite pieces of music in that. Yes. That's yeah, a cool movie. I, used to, I play that on piano as oh, well. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, nice. uh, uh, Hans Zimmer, I think that one is. So in next week's episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I find that it's, you know, it's it's not so much a thing of rigidly scheduling these things into my day. It's not like, you know, I'm going to read between 3 and 4.30 or something. It's not like that at all. It's basically just putting it in so that it's a reminder. You know, it just reminds you, like, so you stop and you kind of think and you go, hold on, I've got to actually just chill out with all the other stuff. Today, I, you know, I just need to take the opportunity to yeah. actually just slow down and actually just grab a book and just, you know, do that. I, I try and do exactly the same. And even on those days, my my phone goes in the bedroom and it stays there. Yeah. I want, you know, and that might almost come across as antisocial, but yeah. I need to do that yeah. to be able to also yeah. to switch off from yeah. everything I need to switch off from. And that includes social and, you know. I, I periodically will go and check you know, if there's any important messages yeah. about, you know, whether it's work related or just friends saying, well, you know, yeah. what's happening and that. And, but I need to do that because it's my only way to yeah. really switch off. I haven't got quite gotten to that point yet. But <laughs> so the phone is still within reach. But, <laughs> but um, you know, but for a long time, I didn't have any work emails on my phone on S- purpose. Smart move. Yeah, you know, I, I did include them fairly recently a few months ago but um but yeah for for years i didn't have any work emails on my phone um but uh i'm i'm sort of and although i might maybe in danger of constantly talking about the dog um but of course you know one one of the uh, things that happened this morning it happens every morning is that that the puppy it's a new puppy um he wakes up very early right so he wakes up at like five. <laughs> I'm no stranger to early mornings. Yes, you well know. So, um, so this morning I got up and just hung out on the couch. Typically what I would do, so this is my pre-puppy, right? This would have been my typical morning. I would have gotten up at five, 5.30 sometimes. If it was a late one, I had a lion. Um, you know, I'd go downstairs, I'd make some coffee, you know, take out my phone or write in my bullet journal or whatever. And then I would literally start thinking about work and I would start doing stuff, mm-hmm. you know. Now with the puppy, you can't really do that because the first thing you got to do is actually deal with whatever the puppy was up to that night, right? So you got to clean up and then usually, obviously, he's quite excited because he's just, you know, he's just woken up and, you know, he's just seen you and so he's going to goof around for a little bit. Mm-hmm. But also, he's still quite tired so actually you know he's probably going to be very active for about 10 minutes and then he'll just kick back and then he'll have a little bit of a snooze on the couch and that's a really cool time because you can actually hang out have a bit of a 
bit of a cuddle, you know, with with the with the puppy. And uh, I watched the whole movie this morning at like five o'clock in the morning. You know, <laughs> yeah. And you know, I was kind of dozing off. I wasn't really actively really watching it, but I was like, you know, coming in and out. I was like, so dozing off. But it's really good. It's a nice time. It's a nice hour and a half mm. or something, just hanging out on the couch, not doing anything. You know, um, just kind of chilling out and and actually just relaxing. You know, so so yeah, slowly getting there. Slowly mm-hmm. getting there. So yeah. Well, yeah. So it's you know, as I was saying, it's um. It's important to rest and relax and mm. switch off from work or whatever it is that's going on. Uh, I've historically been pretty bad at that. Um, but, oh, tech, it's related to that. Um, as you know, I worked for Amazon for a very long time until a few years ago. And But for my final couple of years I was there, I actually worked mm. from home the entire time. Oh, okay. And didn't, go to, go to, uh, didn't need to go to London. And that was due to my back. And actually, the doctor recommended I didn't go on the, the tube and train because actually it was making it worse and no, so on no, and so on. No. So, no. so they, um, uh, they agreed. And uh, thankfully, the role that I was doing enabled that to be possible. Mm. And I started thinking, you know, I thought, right, get up early, get myself together, get get on with work and and so on, go through till you know, 6, 7 o'clock, which is, would, be, would have been typical mm. for me. And... Then I started feeling exhausted. Well, what's going on? I'm, I'm exhausted. And then it just dawned on me that I'm working solidly at home during what would have been my commute, which mm-hmm. was an hour and a half each way at the time as well. And yeah, I might have done some emails and whatnot on there, just mm. almost more than anything to pass the time. But that's an extra three hours of work I was doing. And then I started considering how much time gets wasted when you're at the office. Mm. And that's people come to talk to you about this, that, and the other. Um, stopping by your desk, and it might be work-related. It might just be to have a you know five-minute chat, going to get coffees and whatnot, just to mm. get away from your screen for you know all that time. Your lunch break, all that kind of stuff, and a whole host of other things. You you end up realizing that if you're doing an yeah, you know, uh, and just for argument's sake, a regular eight-hour day, you actually probably only end up working for four of those. Did you? Did you? you know what I mean? Yeah. Did you ever smoke? Uh, years ago. Yeah. All right. So same. So years ago, I used to smoke. Um, I feel really, really bad about this. Anyway, um, when I stopped smoking, one of the first things I realized was how many, how many hours per week you save by not going for a quick fag. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. I mean, and since we're in the UK, by the way, that means cigarette <laughs> just, just, yeah, yeah that probably did make some clarification yeah. perfectly clear yeah. um anyway so you know because that's what happens if you're a smoker you know and especially yeah. if you work I mean, especially back then you know and you worked you worked uh, in a place where there were other smokers you know it'd be like yeah you know you're coming for a quick smoke okay great and then you know that was like what well, five ten minutes or whatever mm-hmm. you know the day mm-hmm. And then the same thing happened several times. And then really, if you if you think, you know, across a week or a month, that just adds up dramatically. Yeah. And it's not only the time that you spent away from your desk or something and you're smoking, but it's also, you know, because then you, can, you need some time getting back into it. And so it's like the yeah. whole thing just multiplies. And it's, Absolutely you does. know, and it makes you like, and of course, this is, this is addiction for you. Like, you know, when you're as a smoker, when you get to the point where you really want a cigarette, there's that 10, 20 minutes before you 
have a cigarette where like your whole body goes, oh, I just want a cigarette, I just want a cigarette. Yeah. And all your thoughts just kind of evolve around that. And so whatever whatever it is that you're actually supposed to be doing, you're not really going to be doing it very well because all you can think about is yeah. the next cigarette. So, you know, bre- breaking that, breaking these shackles. Yeah. You know, and everything is, that. if you work in an office in, in particular, um, if something annoys you or someone annoys you or... You know, whatever happens, an email comes in, what? <laughs> yeah. If you're a, sm- a smoker, or certainly when I was a smoker, your automatic reactions are, oh, right, I'm going to go have a cigarette. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, when you're a non-smoker, you don't, you don't really think, you, obviously you don't think that. You, no. might, you might get off from your desk and walk around for a second or grab some water or whatever it might be. Yeah. But you don't go take 10, 15 minutes to go have a cigarette. I think I've realized that I've just simply replaced my... Um, nicotine addiction with coffee yeah Yeah. (laughs) in the end i think that's what happened cool so have you come across any uh photo news this week uh yeah one thing caught my eye which was um a a surprise and not a surprise all at the same time Mm -hmm. and that was that um obviously both you and i are big fans of um manfrotto gear um we're using God knows how much Manfrotto equipment right now, and every stand that you probably do, we've got between us, I'm sure. And um, they started to do, or they just announced, or are pre-releasing um, uh, gimbals, two of them. Oh, okay. Slightly smaller one that can hold slightly less weight, and a one that can hold, you know, a, a lot of weight. And I think the smaller mm-hmm. one also is going to take, yeah, you know, somewhere between four and five pounds, um, and the larger one will take between ten and eleven pounds. So for the larger DSLRs, um, the large, you know, actual cinema mm. video kind of cameras right, there okay. as well. And it just struck me that, A, why haven't they done that before? Mm. And B, why are they doing it now? And there's not a lot I could find on, on the gimbals themselves other than they are both identical other than one's bigger than the other to yeah. take the additional weight. That's the only difference, it seems. They're generic kind of functions on there, everything you'd expect from a gimbal. Mm-hmm. Akin to um, the Ronin S, the larger one, which is um, the one that I have, just mm-hmm. so you know which one that is, and the Ronin, uh, Ronin SC. Okay. Pretty sure that's right, SC, which is, a, again, just the slightly smaller version. Okay. So it's kind of that style. Um, they're on pre-release. Will they be any good? Who knows? A big part of me wants to say they're going to be excellent because everything they do is excellent. Mm. And if they've taken this long to get round to doing one, then surely they've been spending that time developing it and getting it right. The other part of me thinks, well, are they just getting into the game because they feel they have to? So I did read, there's a bit of a bit of talk going around that these might actually just be third party um gimbals that have got the manfrotto Labor name right. across mm. it which also might make sense you know probably makes business sense um if they make a great gimbal then sure why not why spend mm. all of your time and money when that already exists mm. So I, I don't know. I really don't know what to expect from these. They look great. They look like Manfrotto, mm-hmm. you know, and they're black and they've got the red trim everywhere. But So in comparison to the Ronin or the Sichuan, I still don't know how to pronounce that name, but anyway, um, 
was there anything feature-wise that stood out for I being? I didn't different? see much. No, I didn't see much. There, there, I couldn't really. There wasn't really a full feature list there. Mm. They are doing so. So they get. They're doing the, uh, the kind of the light and the heavy version, if you like. But they're also doing a um, sort of fully loaded version as well, which comes with um, a motorized um, follow focus as well. Mm. It's mm. kind of already in there, mm. and a couple of a couple of other little bits and pieces okay. which which might be useful. Um, oh, the, the other thing that they announced at the same time was basically a extendable boom Ooh. that the right. um, gimbals can attach to, so you can reach it out. Mm -hmm. Now, these are going to be if the Ronin S is anything to go by, that's a heavy gimbal. It's heavier than most, and I do struggle to hold it for yeah. any period of time. Yeah, yeah refuse that. But having that on an end of a boom as well. Hold. I don't know if you've ever held a boom with a mic on the end no, yeah, for yeah. you know just up up that's, in the air like yeah, that for any period of time, just a few minutes, enough. and that your arms ache straight away. Yeah. So holding a gimbal on the end of a boom is sounds. <laughs> you have like an A nine on there. Oh my god! <laughs> on the end of that. So I don't know whether there. I'm assuming that there are going to be controls at the end of the the boom to to actually control it. But so so what differentiates it's the most them? expensive selfie stick ever? Well, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering what differentiates them then. Is it like, how are they sitting like price-wise? Um, they are in this, from what I could gather, they're in the same ballpark as the Ronin's. Mm. Um, so I think the heavier version is around $700. Okay. Which would be give or take the same price as the Ronin S. Okay. Well, that, it certainly sounds interesting. Yeah. I'm intrigued. Yeah. I am. Because if they, if they turn out to be fantastic and as good, if not better than the Ronin S, and I need to see the weight of them. Mm. If it's considerably lighter and in quality better, I would be tempted. Mm. You to know swap. What strikes me about this is that well, there's two things that strike me. One is um, they're coming to the party relatively late. That's mm. one thing. Um, you know, because because gimbals really were all the rage a couple of years ago, three yeah. years ago, or something, four years ago. God, you um, can you can flick for a video without it being full of silky smooth footage right and there's it's got its place i own a gimbal it's got its place absolutely but, but like now that everybody's talking about you know in body stabilization and in lens stabilization and and um and the fact that with you know as new models are being released may they be from sony or canon or Nikon or mm. um, or Fuji or whatever, um, that in-body stabilization is getting better and better every time. Mm. Mm -hmm. And you know, I've recently heard people talk about whether there'll even be a place for gimbals in the future, whether they'll be necessary. You know, that sort of thing. Um, so it's just an interesting thing to bring out a gimbal at this time it is when you've never. You know, you kind of have to, to come new to come new into that to join that game yeah. as a new player or something. I mean, it's like being a new company today and releasing your first DSLR. Hey, Pentax. Oh, <laughs> I didn't want to go there. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, I mean, it's uh, well, we'll see where that goes. You know, Jen, I agree with you. I mean, all the Manfrotto gear that I own, um, I've owned for a very long time just simply because it's it's pretty near indestructible. You know, um, so 
I haven't actually bought that much manifolded gear just simply because I just bought it once and it's been holding up. It's still you know? perfect, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I think everyone should invest into a solid tripod yep. at least once in their life, you know. Um, and uh, and the manifold tripod that I've that I own, you know, I've used that for I don't even know so many photo shoots. It's a constant. Mm. And also because I like uh, when when I do portraiture, uh, especially when I when I do headshots, I like to have the camera on a tripod. So yeah. I don't really do a lot of freehand shooting with that. There's a number of reasons for that. Um, one, one is that just coming back to the headshot thing just for one second, um, and that whole communication bit. It's very difficult to build up a rapport with your subject when you're constantly looking through a camera and you have a camera in front of your face. So once I've set up on a tripod. It's actually much easier just to chat to somebody and then push the button yeah. and keep chatting. So you don't, you're not blocking your face all the time with the camera. And I found that's been a real help. Yeah. Um, so I don't do a lot of freehand shooting um, when I do headshots, for example. Uh, so I like the camera to be on a tripod. Um, the other thing is, of course, when it comes to uh, posing, for example, when you when you pose your subject, when you're not restricted by the camera, you can just get people to mirror what you're doing. Yeah, and so it's much quicker and much snappier, and much easier to make somebody move in a way that you want them to move. So you know, so I just find a lot of advantages in shooting with a tripod. And it may be that I occasionally take the camera off the tripod, but ninety-eight percent of the time, it'll be on the tripod. So right there, you need something that's solid. A lot of the kind of the um, the car shoots that we've done because the exposure time, although it's not like twenty seconds long or whatever it's still way longer than you would need it to be camera shake free. Yeah. Um, so again, you need to have a solid tripod. I mean, I've used that tripod. I've used it on the beach. I've used it in water. I've used it in the forest. I've used it in the studio. I've used it in, in so many different, on so many different occasions and in so many different environments, used it in the snow. Um, that is just, you know, and it's solid. I've used it in windy conditions. Um, I don't like to use it in the city because it's it's heavy. And I don't really like to carry it around a lot. Like well, that. we both have the the, the smaller travel versions well, the, of their tripods. Yeah, as well, the B free version. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, the B free are cool. Um, they're really cool. Uh, they're definitely light. Um, and there's just two versions the aluminum version, and then there's the uh, carbon fiber version. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're both very cool to carry around. You have to have some extra weight that you put on it just to weigh down a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it's got like a hook thing. You can hook your backpack into it and stuff like that. It's just, that is just plants it down a little yeah. bit better. Yeah. Um, but again, they're, they're really cool tripods to, to take around. Um, on the on the bigger side, I just I like a chunky tripod. Yeah. Um, because, you know, something that's heavy. Um, so for most occasions where you can drive to the, to the shoot, it's perfect. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But it's like I said, you know, um, I bought this once years and years ago and I still use it. It's as good as new and it's, it works perfectly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so as far as Manfrotto gear is concerned, genuinely, this is not, you know, we're not sponsored by Manfrotto or anything like that. Um, but it's just simply good gear. Absolutely. It's a little bit pricier, but I do believe when it comes to tripods is that, you know, you get what you pay for by and large. So. And I think it's a one-time investment. Um, I think I've gone, like when I first got into photography, I think I've gone through more cheap tripods 
than anything else. Well, and this is the thing, right? The amount of money you end up spending on tripods, assuming you're shooting regularly and whatnot, mm. over a period of time, I think I've spent more on tripods prior to getting the couple of Manfrotto ones that I use today. Mm. Um, I've went, I spent more money on tripods prior to that than those tripods cost. And the other thing, of course, light stands. Oh my God. Oh. How much money have I spent on light stands? Cheap light stands. You know, and how many, I mean, I should have like, I've got bags full of cheap light stands. It's the same. And even just to put a tiny little LED light on, I still use my yeah. heavy duty Manfrotto ones because I, you don't need to, but just to put them up and yeah. down is just a pleasure. <laughs> I used to Frankenstein my cheap light stands all yeah. the time because like how many, I don't even know how many broken light stands I've got. Oh, don't. Like, you know, piles of them. And, uh, you know, he, there's one nut missing here and one screw missing there and you Frankenstein something together. Yeah. So, oh, it's just... Um, it's appalling, really. Yeah, it <laughs> so, really is. It so really again, is. I mean, you know, it, it makes it makes sense to um, to uh, spend a little bit more money, obviously, if you can afford it, um, and, and uh, you know, invest it into better gear because I think in the long run, it's more cost effective to do yeah. that. Um, I know, just like anybody, you know, when I was first starting out in photography, I just didn't have any money, and so uh, I bought my my first set of lights, studio lights, um, from a friend who was like moving into brown color or whatever it was moving into. And he was selling this like 1980s set of flash flashes and uh, studio flashes that literally genuinely from the 1980s and they had no controls on them. And so the, I mean, literally the only way you could control the, um, uh, the strength of the light was by moving them further away from the subject. That's the, <laughs> only, the only thing you could do. I mean, yeah, literally, you know, but but oh, at the, but at the time, that was a it was a step up. Yeah, for me, you know, at absolutely. The time. So it's cool. I still have them actually. I still have them knocking around. Yeah. That's probably when you're getting started out. I, I certainly did when I I did. You know, had less less money. Didn't know if I was gonna how seriously I was gonna end up taking photography mm. or videography. You just buy kits of stuff. You know, right? it gets you going to get started and get things working, and then it's. Uh, and this is the same as what we said about your camera body and your lenses. Mm. There's no need to change any of it until you've reached its limit. Yeah. And, you know, if it can no longer do something that you want to and have got now reached the capability of doing, yeah. then there's no point in change. There really isn't a lot of point in changing. So once you reach that stage and it's going, okay, now what is going to make the biggest difference, the biggest step up mm. in what I, I want to achieve with my photography or videography? Well, it's, you know, we, we've had this conversation many times before. And actually, I, you know, I often think that um, when, you know, when, when I, if I go back to when I first started out in photography and I really didn't have a lot of money to buy lots of gear, what it meant was that I really learned how to use the, the little gear that I had yeah. to, you know, to the fullest extent. I mean, you know, I had these these two lights, but because I couldn't afford anything else, I really knew how to use them, Yeah, you know. Yeah. And uh, and it's the same with the first, uh, the first speed light that I got. There was actually a, I think it was a, it was a Christmas present or something. I didn't, I didn't have any money to, to buy one myself, and, um, and I got one as a, as a Christmas present. And I've used it for years, and years. I still have it. I still use it. I use it today, actually, mm. as a matter of fact, as a background light. Um, but I know every every button on that thing. I know every function. I know how this 
how it operates under whatever condition because I've used it so many times and because I couldn't afford anything else, I've really used the hell out of it. Mm. Um, and and so that's how I often think about upgrading like camera bodies, for example. I often think like, well, what is it that my current camera cannot do that I need to urgently be able to do mm-hmm. that then warrants buying you know a new camera body for example totally. so I'm, I'm still in this you know I'm, I'm at this point where I know it's probably time to upgrade my my camera body right um mainly because of the shutter count really but but there isn't really anything that I do that I cannot do with this mm-hmm. with this body so if it was a case of I need to do this thing and this camera can't do it then it's a no-brainer. Yeah. And it's like, at that point, like, yeah, sure, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. yeah. You know, need to upgrade. Um, but I haven't really come up against anything that I can't do with my camera. And the same thing, actually, same thing is true for my, my computer. So, you know, I said, no, my, my Mac is old. It's old, oldie Mac Alderson. Um, but it's it, got one of those, like, purple or light blue backs to it. Not quite. <laughs> no, it's like, it's a really old Mac. It's a, Mac Pro is old. It's like... Uh, 2012, isn't it? Yeah, it's like eight, nearly eight years old. Yeah, nearly eight years old. Um, it still does everything I needed to do. It's, it runs Photoshop. It runs um, Final Cut. It runs all the Lightroom and everything else that I do. Um, I haven't really come up against any major limitations with it. Um, I mean, I've upgraded it. You know, I put different um, hard drive in it and made it faster and added RAM over the years and all that kind of stuff. So it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty much maxed out now. Um, but for the time being, there isn't a pressing need for me to spend considerably more money to upgrade it Yeah. at, at this point. You know, I'm in no doubt that the point will come, you know, at some point. Yeah. But but right now, um, it, it still kind of does exactly what I need to. It ha- I, like, what it means is, is I haven't outgrown it, Yeah. you know, there's, there's nothing that I do that I cannot do with the gear that I own. And often when people end up developing gas, you know, gear acquisition syndrome, yeah. um, I sometimes feel like, you know, like when, you know, when you, when you talk to people and I go like, oh yeah, I had to buy the latest A7 Mark so-and-so or whatever, or, you know, and you kind of go, like, okay, so what, what was it that you couldn't do with your, I mean, what is it that you're doing now that you couldn't do with your camera? Mm-hmm. Like, most likely, nine times out of ten, there's really no reason other than, oh, I just want to buy a new camera or something. Yeah. But I do, I'm really a believer of like really uh, getting down to the nitty gritty with the gear that you own. And then um, when, when you start pushing the boundaries, that's kind of when you start looking at the next step up. And I would always recommend to anybody who wants to get into artificial lighting, uh, maybe, you know, if you, if you had the point where um, you've shot with available light for a couple of years or something and you want to get into artificial lighting, I always I highly recommend for people to start with speed lights and to just learn with, you know, with a couple of speed lights. They don't have to be expensive. You can buy some cheap, young, new, you know, Chinese knockoffs. I, I still use mine. Absolutely fine. Because the principle of lights are the same. You know, whether you whether you spend 70 pounds on a speed light or, or um, 800 pounds on a speed light, yeah. the principles are still essentially the same so um and so this you know so you can learn with relatively cheap 
um, speed testing, you learn about, you know, how to light things and, and lighting diagrams and, you know, and when it's time for you to move on from speed lights to studio strobes, you'll know. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's usually when you get to the point where you need to do things, where you need more power. You know, that is usually the point where you need to move on. For me, that uh, that was the point where I started doing a lot of um, photo shoots outdoors and um, I needed to be able to overpower the sun, essentially. And that was the point where, you know, yeah, where my speed lights just didn't do the trick anymore. And that's kind of when I had to look into um, into studio lighting. You know, that's so I, I think, you know, you naturally kind of get up, you come up against these barriers and then new gear can help you break these barriers. Yeah. So that's, yeah, totally. my little rant, my little rant, rant of the day. So I came across another very, very interesting little bit of news this week. Oh, color me intrigued. All right. Cool. So do you remember we were talking about the, the new can, uh, Canon R5 and R6? Right? Yeah, of course. And so since last week's episode, um, I've been hearing a lot of people talk about the fact that these cameras seem to be overheating. They seem to be getting very hot in video mode. I have read and seen several of the same things and, you know, first thing across my mind, are people overdoing it a little bit with that, possibly? Well, it, it was quite, it was noticeable, wasn't it? Because um, at the Canon launch event, they had a, you know, a number of um, big influencers taking part. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, what do they call the Canon ambassadors of light? Yeah. And so one of them was Peter, Peter McKinnon, for example. Um, and of course they were, you know, very highly endorsing the R5. Um, and, and then pretty much immediately afterwards, I saw a lot of stuff, uh, you know, popping up on YouTube and everywhere else that was talking about how these, these cameras would, you know, get very hot and overheat and, um, you know, when shooting video and, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, um, Sony had kind of had, had similar issues mm-hmm. originally. Yeah. But, um, and then of course, so over the last couple of days, I saw a lot of videos about how the overheating issue isn't that much of an issue. And, you know, I shot this whole video with the R5, blah, blah, and all that kind of stuff. So are they just getting hot or are they shutting down because they've got too hot? Well, I think I think the fear is that they might be shutting down. Um, and, you know, like we discussed um, last week, it's, I think the thing is like as you shoot in a higher resolution, then your your recording time will diminish. Yeah. Um, but they seem to be getting very hot. It appears everybody's very worried about that, and it appears Canon are already not only aware of the issue, but they're already working actively on a solution for it. Because see that to me immediately suggests that it could definitely be an issue that could cause a problem with the camera. If they're working on a solution for it, well, based on the news that came out today, um, I definitely think that Canon were aware of the issue way before they launched the camera. Okay, right, uh, because they've uh, filed a patent in Japan, um, patenting patenting is that word? Yeah, um, a number of designs for new adapters, lens adapters, uh, that have built-in cooling systems so there are a number of different designs one is an active cooling system which basically means it has a little fan on the on the bottom and then some air vents on the top apparently so that's what it seems to be saying is that it most likely uh, it will push air past the sensor 
and it'll then you know take away the, the hot air essentially and cool the whole the sensor down that way um and the, the other design seems to be like a passive design like you know one that doesn't that has air vents and no actual act, active fan um i think the immediate my immediate thought was well if it has an, an active component in it, like a fan then what about noise so if you're a videographer yeah. for example is could there potentially be a noise issue i mean are these fans noisy or what and the other thing is vibration if you have a fan going around in your in your lens adapter so this is like a, an ef to rf lens adapter so yeah so clearly there's going to be some kind of vibration going on so could that be an issue no idea is that maybe why they have two at least two alternative designs that i've just patented no idea yet but it does kind of strike me as somewhat interesting um that this news comes out now like a, what like a week or so after yeah you know after yeah. the announced year five so it, it seems to suggest in my head anyway that canon were very much aware of that overheating issue um it's what it seems to suggest this may of course just be total coincidence who knows you know but it could be you know did they rush these models out deliberately um well possibly? i don't know I mean, see, part of me thinks, because, you know, when you when you compare the video capabilities of, like, let's say, the R5 to even some of the C-series cine cameras, yeah. you'll find that performance-wise, you know, the, the, I mean, the R5, which is a small mirrorless camera, kind of outguns mm -hmm. something like a C100 or a C200 or something mm -hmm. like that. But it's in a much smaller body, and of course, they don't really. There's no space to build in cooling systems, which the cinema cameras have, you know. So you have an immediate issue there, whereby you pack all this stuff into a small body with no, you know, w w with no cooling or air cooling system in it, and all these components run, especially the the processor or the chip, you know, run hot, and then you got to get rid of that hot air somehow. Um, so I'm wondering whether we've sort of reached the limit of what can feasibly be done in a small camera body like that. Mm -hmm. um, because if you wanted to build in cooling systems, on you'd kind of you'd have to come up with a bigger form factor. And you know, the whole idea with with DSLRs or mirrorless cameras is that you've got a relatively small form factor of a camera that you can fit all this stuff in. So that's just sort of my my thought about this is that maybe we've kind of come to the limit of what we can feasibly achieve no idea quite possible quite quite possible and that's yeah, it's not necessarily a bad thing or or a, or a good thing you know it's just is what it is right it's yeah. technology reaching its limit for what it can do and that's fine unless these adapters actually work i'm find it hard to believe that these adapters these cooling adapters are going to be effective without it causing any side effect you know, and mm -hmm. even the passive one, if there are air vents that go directly to that sensor, it, it's going to get full of dust and whatnot, surely. Uh, you know, it's possible. Um, know, without Obviously, without seeing these, this is all hypothetical until we mm. actually see them in action. But mm. that, that, that would be my first reaction with that. Yeah, there's a, num there's a number of um, 
I don't know weird aspects about this, but you know, we'll see. I mean, you know, the, the other thing, of course, that could happen is that you know, technology gets gets pushed in 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 a direction where you know maybe the next generation of sensors um, won't generate as much heat or whatever. You know, who knows? Um, well, but it's it's issues like this that does drive tech forward, right? And, yeah, that's right. You know, and with so many, you know. With, you know the major companies now all doing the same thing yeah it's got to push it forward of course you know and we've had this discussion many times before as all the you know as viewers and listeners will know but you know the question is always like do we really need to like be able to film in 8k so you know there's there's that um but uh yeah so it appears as though you know as far as technology is concerned you know you you giveth with one hand and you know, mm. take it away with the other hand. Um, so there are always consequences for, for these sort of things. And that's the overheating issue. Well, I don't know. It seems to be sticking around. If you remember, like Sony had the same issue um, some years ago uh, with the mirrorless cameras and overheating you know, video. And I can't remember whether it caused the uh, the cameras to shut down or not. Um, but I, I remember there was a big, was a big issue there. Mm. Um, yeah, that's... We'll just have to wait and see, I think. We'll see. Yeah, it's going to be... Very interesting, mm. very very interesting. So, but personally, I would uh, I would probably steer clear of the R five and R six until this plays itself out mm. and we find out what's actually going on and if there is a fix for it and if there isn't, mm. what they can do is I'm sure there's a Mark two for both of these already underway and will be out within mm. the year. Yeah, you know, and it will resolve this this issue. I yeah. bet. So I think we should mention this month's photo challenge mm -hmm. yep definitely and the fact that we've decided to extend the deadline because i don't know you tell us why okay it's because we that's the royal we mm -hmm. it really means me um forgot to uh put it on facebook yes you did forget didn't you Kay? yes <laughs> yes it was a busy week yes and not a lot of sleep um it's all right there's a simple solution to this exactly get another puppy no no so um so the july photo challenge remember it was all about landscapes mm -hmm. um and uh when i say landscapes again you know it could be any kind of scape any kind of seascape or netscape or any kind of scape mm -hmm. um and all you've got to do is send your photos to uh, you can either send it by email so you can send them to uh, camera podcast at gmail.com or you can send them in via Facebook. We're on facebook.com forward slash camera shake podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, you can tie them to the tail of a frog. For those of you who don't know, there's a cat behind the camera attacking a couch at this present moment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there is. Anyway, that being said, Remember, the 16th of August is going to be the new deadline for the uh, photo challenge. So yep. um, send your stuff in. Uh, we had a lot of fun looking at last month's challenge, which was animals and pets. Um, so I'm looking forward to um, to looking at some some landscape photos. Totally. That should be good. Um, I'm not much of a landscape photographer. don't know if I mentioned this before. Probably. Once or twice. No. Um, so I will use that as inspiration. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. And as this episode airs, I'll be just getting ready to go away mm -hmm. for a week. Um, so I'll be down in Devon. And so I'm going to 
take some photos myself. Oh, I'm great. There. Yeah, that's the plan anyway. Yeah. Will I get around to it? I hope so. Well, you know. I'm taking my gear. Yeah, so. cool. So, see, the thing is, like, as, as, we're, as we're recording this right now, I should be in Nova Scotia right now. Oh, this is true. That's right. Yeah. So, normally, I would be hanging out in Canada right now, but mm-hmm. I'm not um, because, obviously, we had to bank our flights. Mm-hmm. So, that was my original plan was to um, kind of get into the landscape game and uh, and take some take some photos out there yeah. but uh, as it happens i am not there oh well so you know not worth thinking about <sighs> no and you know we'll just it's uh, what it is it is what it is yeah exactly so uh had we gone to canada we wouldn't have been able to get a dog is that three times in one yeah episode? probably <laughs> anyway um cool, New dog pictures will be on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash camera shake podcast. Forward slash puppy. <laughs> forward, forward slash puppy. Uh, <laughs> In the puppy hour. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's it for this week's episode. This was episode 14 of the camera shake podcast. Can you believe that it was 14 already? Not really. No. I really can't. Yeah. So that means we've been doing this for 14 weeks. We have been. Yeah. Yeah, we have. We have. And... We're also doing a double episode today as well. So there you go. (laughs) Cool. So without further ado, we will see you again next week. Take it easy. Until then. Bye. Bye. Bye.